welcome once again, my friends, to the Global Gale podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor, coming to you from a very snowy Stockholm in Sweden. I know, I know, you're listening down below there in Sydney. You're on Bondi Beach with your headphones on. It's probably Sunday morning and you're enjoying the sunshine. It's about 40 degrees there later on in the day. But above here in the frozen north, lads, she's our jeez. I'll tell you, it was minus 15 here the other day. It is what it is. You are listening to the podcast for the 70 odd million Irish around the world and you are as always very welcome to this week's conversation. It's been a very busy time lately and I think that tends to happen when you're coming up to the, the year end, you know, and everybody's spending the last their budget and doing their bits and, bits and pieces. And it's no different in media or in podcasting or anywhere else. So it's been very, very busy. So I think I'm going to miss the week there. But there's lots of podcasts coming up now to keep you busy over the Christmas period. I hope you've all your shopping done. I hope that, Jesus, especially if you're on the other side of the world, that you have the, the Christmas card to the mammy is gone. Because lads, get late now. You know, there's very little chance it's going to make it from Melbourne or from Singapore poor now but you're looking better late than never so get your christmas cards in there get them going home and that if you're not going home yourself this christmas uh it's an amazing time of the year i was watching the toy show there the other night it's great that we have you know the rte player and streaming and all these things and uh, i have two children who didn't grow up in ireland but um and we have another girl that you know we, she's basically our adopted daughter and they all gathered around the telly on friday night to watch the late late toy show with uh, with patrick keelty who's the the new presenter and it was brilliant altogether if you haven't seen it go back and have a look at it it's a magnificent piece of television altogether and Keelty's a great presenter altogether ryan tuberty did a great job for years and now he's sauntered off and, and patrick has taken off the show but it's just it's magnificent television altogether and uh, a great sign of the times i will never get me head around how he has managed to do it in the southern hemisphere because uh, friends of mine in sydney and melbourne be going yeah no we'll probably go to the beach on christmas morning that, that, that will never make sense to me lads hopefully at some point i might get to join you down there and experience it for myself but wherever you are in the world i hope you're enjoying this festive season as it kicks off now i hope there's plenty of christmas parties going on and that one or two things i'd like to bring up for you before we go into this week's in, uh, interview which is a fascinating conversation about an organization in england again uh, i was watching on or i was looking at social media there the other day and uh, my good friend Martin Farher otherwise known as Faraway Martin brilliant singer brilliant guitar player brilliant songwriter who is working out of Doha in Qatar so Martin went down there with his partner I'm not sure they've got married yet I think they get married soon enough and he was a school teacher uh, but he's a brilliant performer as well and he's gone full-time into the music now and I saw something very interesting there where he is doing uh, house gigs right so himself and his band will show up in your house in Doha and the idea being that they're just going to put a hat or a bucket out there and try to fill it with a few bob and send that money then to the people of the Gaza Strip, right? You you can't have avoided seeing what's going on there. It's all over social media, uh, what's happening there. And we can talk as much as we like about Israel's right to defend itself and everything else like that, but what's happening there is not of this world. And to see hospitals being bombed and to see people being killed there, it's just it's just too much, especially at this time of the year. But fair play to Martin. Now, I know he's at home in Ireland for a funeral at the moment, but I just wanted to, to tip me cap to Martin, who was on this podcast this time last year when we were down in Doha for the World Cup in football. Uh, and he's going to be doing this now. I think I don't think it's this Saturday. It'll be next Saturday. So we sometime around the middle of December. But fair play to Martin and fair play to anybody uh, who was willing to contribute and try to make life uh, for the people of Gaza a little bit easier. And again, not excusing anything that happened 
Hamas have done a disaster of an organization both for Israel and for the Palestinian people themselves but there has to be a better way so ceasefire lads release all the hostages all those kinds of things listen let us get into the topic of conversation for this week now on this podcast we love to bring you things like faraway martin going into people's houses and playing for a few bob for a good cause but there are also i feel like what do we call them will we call them darker tales from ireland that we have to deal with let's go with that right so when i was in england recently uh, I was making a lot of contacts there and around London and you know yourself, Athne and Kiro, Kiro Gela, a beetle knows another beetle. And you meet one person and they put you onto another person and the next thing you have five or six stories that you want to tell. And one of the stories that I wanted to tell you and I wanted to bring to you was the story of Irish people who have been through the system of mother and baby homes, right? Uh, mother and baby and county homes as they were called. Um, essentially what we're talking about is what came to be known as the Magdalene Laundries. This would be where women would have gotten pregnant mostly out of outside of wedlock and they would have been brought to these places and they would have been kept there until they had their babies and then their babies were mostly taken off them and put out for adoption or for fostering or, or otherwise sent away. Uh, it's one of the greatest stains on our nation's history over the 100 years that we've been in existence that this happened. Uh, we're not going to go through the reasons for why it happened, we're not going to go through who's to blame, but what we are going to talk about on this episode is we're going to talk to Patrick Rogers, a Londoner based in Manchester and he works for an organisation called Fred. F-R-E for the A, right? So the E with a little strip over the top of it, if you're not familiar with spellings in the Irish language. Uh, so Patrick is working for this organisation, and they exist to support people in England, especially in the north of England, where, where Patrick is based, uh, in terms of dealing with what they've been through in the mother and baby and county home situation, and also the sort of the restitution or the justice that these people are due, right? So it's been through the houses of the Irachtas. There have been all sorts of investigations, and we all know the things that went wrong. And now there's a system of financial compensation that's been put in place. Now, say what you will about the system. I've seen an awful lot of criticism of it from people who have been through the mother and baby homes, uh, that it's dependent on the time that you yourself spent in a mother and baby home. So in some cases where babies would have been uh, put up for adoption straight away, uh, a person might have had no contact with their birth parents or their birth family at all. They might not know anything about them. They might not know the first thing about who they are and where they came from and they're not entitled to any sort of compensation or any sort of financial restitution at all. I find that beyond criminal. We come from one of the wealthiest nations in the Western world, you know, or so we're always told, and I know that might be inflated by the fact that we sell Viagra out of Cork or what have you, but surely we have a situation whereby we can afford to pay these people the money that might make what has what have often been very difficult lives that little bit easier. So I was delighted to get the opportunity to talk to Patrick Rogers and to bring him onto the Global Gale podcast because again, there's a lot of people listening around the world uh, who will have been through this system, right? There was thousands of Irish children went through it. I know those people. I know the sons and daughters and the grandsons and the granddaughters of those people. And really what I want to do is I want to sort of, you know, bring this into the light and to help those people who did suffer through the system and who were affected by this system, but also to tell the story of what it is and the positive steps that are being taken by the likes of Patrick and by the likes of Freya to help people out, especially in England. So I spoke to him earlier on in the week, and here is the conversation. Patrick Rogers on the Global Gale podcast talking about the mother and baby and county homes and uh, where we all are in the year 2023 with restitution for the people who went through that terrible system. <laughs>
his computer. Patrick, an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. And while I was waiting on my mouse to come back from the dead there, you started to explain a little bit about your own story. So maybe we'll start there. You're talking to me from Manchester, but you're actually from, is it North London? Is that where you're from? Yes, I'm from, uh, yeah, I was born and brought up in North London. Uh, so my uh, my mum got dressed was from County Fermanagh and she would come over here in the uh, in the late 50s, early 60s. And my dad is uh, County Donegal. He's from the absolutely beautiful Aramore Island up in the, oh, up right. in the Rosses. So, and he would, he would come over around a similar time, um, came over to Glasgow and worked his way down the country and ended up in North London where he, where he met my mother. Um, yeah, and we were brought up in a very, you know, very Irish household. It was, uh, it was very typical of um my peer group at the time where we would have you know our summer holidays would have been six weeks in uh six weeks in for me in county for manor we'd gone back worked on the farm um gone up to enniskillen or gone out gone over to ballyconnell Cavantown, places like that um and you know i went to went to a school where people were largely second generation mostly from either the west of ireland we had a lot of people from Donegal, from Mayo, from Tipperary, or from the north as well. So a lot of my peer group would have been from Tyrone and Down and places like that. So um, we all had a very, very similar experience growing up in that in that North London um, or London Irish environment. Mm. Uh, tell me, but one of the questions I have to ask is, were you into soccer at all? And did, was it Arsenal or Tottenham Hotspur? Which part of uh, of North London would that have been? Which which one went for did the Irish go for there? Well, it's um, I went to a school at St Thomas More's in Wood Green, which would have been mainly, which would have been mainly Spurs, just due to the geographical divide. But uh, thankfully, I was brought up in the red red half of North London. Um, my earliest memories of watching football would have been the 70, 79 cup final so that would have been the team of uh jennings and o'leary and uh pat rice and of course the great liam brady and frank staple and so my mom and dad effectively said you know if you're going to watch football you've got to support arsenal because they're the they're the irish club um but you know again you know it would have been a lot of kids would have had a you know a London club would be, be Arsenal Spurs mainly in that area um, and then would watch just due to the second generation aspect of it we would uh, watch Celtic and I've still got a season t- I've got a season ticket up there now and so I'm up and down to Glasgow on a regular basis watching them play it's amazing how football binds people together because that was exactly it. I never really sort of got stuck into one English club apart mm-hmm. from a bizarre fascination with Newcastle United at one point. But uh, because of this, you know, when you had that Irish connection, Frank Stapleton, Liam Brady, Pat Rice, David O'Leary, and the same thing then at Liverpool and, of course, at Manchester United. And you you live in Manchester now. How did you end up above in Manchester? Uh, well, my uh, my lovely wife is from Stoke trent so she wanted to move up to be closer to her folks uh, so we moved up here about oh, be about eighteen years ago now. Um, so she moved up. Then I followed her up uh, about a year afterwards, um, and I ended up working with the uh, working with homeless people in Stockport um, in a homeless families hostel, and then moved over to work for an Irish advice and information organisation called Irish Community Care Manchester. Mm-hmm. Um, where I worked as an advice and information worker. Uh, before that, in London, I'd worked in 
some people may remember it, is a place called Conway House. So Conway House was run by an organisation called Irish Centre Housing, which no longer exists now. But Conway House was a big hostel, it was about a 98-bed hostel, uh, originally set up at the London Irish Centre, where the London Irish Centre is now. Um, and the London Irish Centre simply became too small for the amount of people that they were seeing. It was largely um, men that had, uh, you know, got the ferry over to start work in London, didn't have anywhere to go, and they would have pitched up at the London Irish Centre. Then they moved to the larger building, Conway House in Kelburn, uh, and that still retained quite a large element of uh, Irish people coming over to look for work, but also was a homeless hostel at the same time. Um, and it had a it had an annex in it called Ancashlon, which was built for older Irish men who had you know worked all their lives, lived in lived in single rooms, never really had a chance to save up. A lot of the money had been had been sent back, and so they were uh, so they had accommodation there as well, where they could live out live out their, their last years of their life. Uh, how was it? I mean, I'm struck by two things, right? One is that uh, growing up Irish in London must have been a great preparation for being a Londoner in Manchester, but we'll get back to that at some other <laughs> point. How was it that you ended up working uh, with homeless people? Was that something that because of the upbringing that you had, because of what you saw happening to, to Irish people and in particular Irish men around you, that you felt drawn to that, Patrick? Yeah, we were brought up, you know, in a very, you know, very compassionate household where we were always taught to um, to, to look at people who were less fortunate, fortunate than, than ourselves and to uh, ensure that, you know, kind of no one's left behind. And on top of that, you know, you're acutely aware of the experiences of the Irish in London, um, particularly coming over to work, having insecure work, insecure accommodation, you know, where they'd live, they'd live in a room in a house where they would... You know, they would have to be out for most of the day, even at the weekend where they couldn't, you know, where they couldn't settle, couldn't have their own settled accommodation. Uh, and it made life quite difficult and very, you, you know, very fluctuating for, for them in their experiences. So with that, you know, when I started work, it was uh, when I started full time proper work, uh, I'd been volunteering at the London Irish Centre and this and this role came up so it was absolutely perfectly chimed in with my um both my experiences and an outlook on life that i've uh, that, that i've always had where we should be um reaching out a, a helping hand for uh, to people did you sort of grow into that then through volunteering in the london irish center and then sort of you know did you go to university did you have to study for the role that you're that you're in now or the roles that you've had over the last few years uh, yeah i <sighs> So I did history at university, and that's uh, obviously quite informative about any number of things. But what it did is it, it taught me different skills that I as I did, I begin to use in life. So a lot of it is analytical skills that you that, say, that you would take from writing essays, from analysing problems, looking for solutions, looking at arguments. And when you're dealing with or working with homeless people, there is an awful lot of looking at Right. How did that person end up in this situation? What is it that they can do to move forward? And then looking at solutions and looking at a, at the kind of end game where we can get them um, full time accommodation and it, not just get them full time accommodation, but that they that they can hold down um, full time accommodation because 
if someone has had quite a chaotic life, then actually just giving someone a home isn't the you know isn't the end game because if you just give someone a home and they still carry on living a chaotic lifestyle, chances are they will be um, they will end up homeless again and just go back through the system and that will be constant. Um, is there any sort of uh... Let me say, is there any sort of a formula when you see people coming to you? Do you go, okay, there's three or four or five things that cause people to come into contact with you? You know, because I mean, ideally, rather than actually working with homelessness, we'd all love to be working with preventing people from becoming homeless in the first place. So what do you see as the things that we could be doing so that essentially people never come in contact with you at all? Well, that is a that's a very good question. Now it is. Homelessness prevention is a very difficult task. Um, there is several issues that tend to lead to homelessness. It can be traumatic experiences, uh, youngster leading to uh, chaotic lifestyles, substance misuse, uh, mental health problems. So I would say you have to deal with the roots of homelessness at source. So that is looking at young people's experience particularly vulnerable young people's experience where they have um, come from chaotic households where uh, they're in a system where substance misuse can be prevalent where people have come through the care care system uh, and you have to teach people life skills at a very young age in order to ensure that they have the tools to not you know not fall into that system one of my jobs when I worked for Irish Centre Housing was as a life skills worker and it was you know again it's a wee bit late because it's that was working in a large female hostel in Islington and it was looking at what happened why people had got to that that, that situation that they were in homeless accommodation and then trying to provide both general solutions where you see common themes and then speaking to people as individuals and seeing what is the unique situation to them that brought them into that uh, homeless system. Again, once they got accommodation, the whole idea is that then that they have that they will have a package of skills that will enable them to maintain accommodation. So that is, I mean, that's dealing with it after the horse, horse's bolt in many ways, but it's hoping to see that they don't come through that system again. Uh, but certainly, you know, dealing with the root causes of homelessness, the common themes of homelessness is exactly where, you know, governments should really look at um, tackling the problem. Because when you have someone go through that system, that um, chaotic lifestyle that, you know, does not really contribute into to, to wider society. So that's, it's not just that you're dealing with an issue of homelessness you're also having people that have skills and talents that aren't using them skills and talents for the greater good it's a, it's a terrible waste at times when you see people who find them because homelessness is one of those things that if homelessness is your problem you don't need any more problems you've got enough to deal with in terms of just dealing with that and finding somewhere to sleep safely for the night and to eat and to, to take care of yourself to the extent that you can but I wanted to ask you Patrick about the organisation Freya because you've moved over more towards working specifically with people who have come through the mother and baby homes which existed in Ireland 
or actually until about 1995, I think was when the last one on uh, High Park and Grace Park Road closed down. It was uh, a wee, so bit, how... wee bit late. Bestbrook Best closed in 1998. Was it 1998? Uh, is... Bestbrook closed. Yeah. Yeah. God. Yeah. That's that. That's 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 the that, that was the very last of them. But you yeah. know they were they were a prevalent network throughout Ireland from the foundation of the state in 1922. Um, yeah. Did Did you see a lot of people? Did you come into a lot of people who had come through that system? Is that how you wound up working with with people uh, with that background? It's odd, like, so when I was working at Conway House, that would have been around the time of uh, one of the initial uh, institutional inquiries, and they were looking for workers to go in to do, uh, to interview and speak to people who had lived in institutions in order to apply for the redress scheme. And I just looked at it and thought, oh, yeah, that's not, you know, that would be too heartrending and too difficult to do. Uh, but I suppose after a while, when you're dealing with people who suffering from or suffering from the effects of homelessness or experiencing homelessness, um, you begin to see that you have the skills in order to deal with that. So, you know, unfortunately, this, you know, this, uh, the mother and baby homes existed. The uh, commission was set up and its recommendations were out in order to um, address the concerns of the former residents. So when Post was advertised for a worker to try and uh, support people to apply to the uh, mother and baby home and company home action plan, um, I felt that it was something that I had the skills by that stage uh, and the emotional intelligence to do to work with people in a constructive way in order to uh, enable them both to address their experiences and to try and make applications where relevant. When you speak to people who've been through the mother and baby home systems, what's their overriding emotion? Is it anger? Is it disappointment? Is it that they've been in some way abandoned? Are they looking for revenge? What are they looking for when they come to you for, for that kind of help to deal with that whole system that's been put in place for redress? A lot of people are just looking for answers. Um, a lot of people are looking for their gaps in their life to be addressed, to say, you know, I know I was in a mother and baby home and I have no idea what, you know, you know, some of them have no idea where they lived, which home that they were in. They just know that they were in a home. Uh, and because of the unfortunate stigmas that were around being in a mother and baby home, they don't even get told which home that they were in. It's brushed under the carpet. The other things, the other emotions that people feel there is, you know, there's some anger at feeling abandoned and feeling let down by the state that, you know, a lot of people still have a huge emotional attachment to Ireland who are in the homes. But at the same time, that they that, that, uh, they separate Ireland from the Irish state and that they will say, no, I was, you know, I was let down by the Irish state. I was let down by the wider Irish society that, you know, kind of con condemned uh, mothers, condemned children uh, for for, uh, for simply being born out of being born out of wedlock. And they want to talk about their experiences. Now, it may be that they have never really talked to anyone before about what about what they went through. They have had to be quiet because they felt that that was you know that that was the site of pressure that was put on them 
not to uh, not to discuss the matter to feel stigma so i'm because i'm you know an independent person i don't work for the irish government uh, i work for a charity simply to support people it gives people an opportunity to talk in a confidential manner where they know that i won't be discussing their experiences with um you know with anyone else and then they can actually talk through what happened to them, both in terms of living in the homes and when they were children being boarded out and their experiences, often horrendous experiences of being boarded out to families who wanted them to work on, wanted children to work on the farms. Is that the rule rather than the exception? Because, and again, like this sounds like a stupid question. I hope it doesn't come across as being glib, right? Well, we hear the horror stories of abuse, of physical abuse, of emotional abuse, of neglect. Uh, and yet, you know, like, is that the sort of the experience across the board? Was there anything positive that came out of that system at all? Because I think in all the years we've been hearing about it since Bespera closed in 1998, there seems to have been absolutely nothing to redeem that system at all. I've not heard. I've not heard anything. And you know what? I, th- I mean, I don't think. I don't think it necessarily is uh, a, a stupid question because we, you know, we need to ask questions in order to 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 get people to understand what happened in the home. We need to ask a variety of questions, and the answer to the simple answer that I have to that is that I've not come across anything that was that was positive for people um the absolute you know the absolute opposite of it where you meet people who were you know incredibly intelligent um people who went through the homes who were denied access to a proper education simply by the fact that they were um that they were brought up in the home system so they were marked out when they went to school as being being in the homes they were, you know, often excluded from playing with other children. Um, they might not even, if they if they did well in exams, might not even get their exam results because, you know, it couldn't be shown the people who were living in the homes were, you know, were capable of being intelligent um, and successful. You know, it was a constant way of doing people down. Uh, the, you know, the whole system seemed to be set up to exclude rather than to include and to control ultimately um the experiences you know are absolutely horrendous when you look at the language that's used around uh the language that's used around women who went into the homes you are almost criminalizing you know women who went into homes because ultimately the homes are the homes are aimed at women aimed at control women uh so you have the idea that someone who goes in to a home uh, as a pregnant mother is a first-time offender someone who goes into the home again is a second-time offender you know so this whole language around criminalization you have people would talk about you know the fact that if a parent you know brought them to a home you know that may well break that relationship between someone going into a home pregnant and their own family so it would make their relationship incredibly difficult and possibly break that um for for a a duration of their life and all the mental health traumas that come with that 
when women are in homes and they have to sign away their babies, that leads to huge emotional impact. And for then for children who go through the home system, get boarded out, or aware of what's happened to them, there's either a feeling, feeling of abandonment from the mother because they simply don't understand that the mother felt that they um, that they had to hand over a child, or they simply don't know what happened. So that, again, there's huge there's from a young age there's a huge dislocation you know and a huge impact on their mental health that often lasts for the rest of their lives and that can be dealt with through you know substance misuse um through either alcohol illegal or prescribed medication um it means that people often feel that they've got nowhere else to turn no one to talk to and that's uh, you know, and so it's a profound impact on both the people who go into the homes and then on wider society, because a lot of people will talk about that societal pressure, that societal pressure to to put uh, that they felt they had no choice but to go into a home. Um, we've seen the redress scheme. We've seen all the shortcomings of it. When you look at that from the point of view of the people that you try to help, right? Because there's been all sorts of rules and regulations put in place. And again, to echo something that you just said, the system of redress seems to be designed to exclude rather than to include people. What do you think of the system of the compensation that has been offered to people who've gone through that system and who have suffered from all the, the wrongs that we've just been listing for the last 20 odd minutes? It would be really remiss of me, you know, not to, you know, not to say that 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 people who lived in the homes and people have gone through that homes have serious serious reservations about the about the way that the redress scheme has been set up, um, and that you know that there is exclusion, particularly in the case of a child who may have lived in a home for less than six months, um, was then boarded out. And following that, never had any contact with their with their parents. So, you know, what that seems to, you know, the, the difficulty that, that former residents would say is that they, you know, that it's simply reflecting their time in the home rather than a lifetime of trauma that's been that's been enforced by the by the system. Um from our point of view, we've we have people who have uh, we've worked with former residents who have great difficulty in understanding why that has occurred um, and why these exclusions have been put in place. Think now what that's uh, so, so. But equally, many people are also not, you know, not necessarily looking for the financial redress. Yeah. The big thing that they're looking for is to get them answers, to get documentation to say that this is what happened to me when when I was, you know, when I was two, three years old. That's that that's a that that's a lot of that's a lot of the focus of attention of former residents of of, of the homes is to fill in them gaps as much as anything else. Is it possible? Is it even easy to fill in those gaps, Patrick? Because, you know, uh, if we look at where we haven't been a great nation of records, you know, in mm -hmm. terms of it's very difficult to find out unless it's by word of mouth or by certain historical documents, but we don't mm -hmm. have. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry for you coming in and out. Here. It's like Piccadilly. Sorry yeah. about that. Go on. 
Now, but is it easy to find or to fill in those gaps? Is it even possible? Because we haven't been a great nation of records in Ireland, and I'm not sure that uh, everything that you know the people behind this scheme even wanted to document things. So, are you able to help people find out about their past and where, and perhaps what home they were in when they were younger? So it can be quite it can be quite tricky. Essentially, what happened was um, a lot of the, the records of the homes that were covered by the Commission of Inquiry were centralised through and can be accessed through subject access requests. And that, as I say, tracing them records hasn't been too difficult. On the other hand, homes that were that were not investigated can be a lot more difficult to get records from, and in and that involves a lot more in the way of you know, thinking on your feet and going to, uh, first of all, Tusla, which um, is the overarching body for people who lived uh, for um, child protection in Ireland, have, uh, you know, have some records. And then it's a matter of, you know, going to county archivists who, you know, the county archivists that we've dealt with have been incredibly helpful, have been, you know, uh, have gone well above and beyond in order to try and trace records where they can. Um, there is there is cases where we simply haven't been able to trace to trace the records of people and that can prove incredibly frustrating because what you're now doing is you know giving people uh you know the incentive to go and trace these records to in many ways dig up parts of the past that they have you know um buried or repressed and once you be begin to open that up you know, and say that you may be able to get answers where you can't then get answers it can prove incredibly frustrating for for, uh, for people um you're right in terms of the fact that Ireland was not always a great record keeping or certainly the orders that ran the homes were not great at record keeping and you know sometimes you'll see it can be quite difficult to trace records where there's misspelled names mm. Where there might where, where records might just be kept inaccurately, and there is further levels of problems where people's births were illegally registered. So you know, effectively, where someone was born, had a birth certificate, and then was adopted afterwards. New birth certificates may be um, may be issued to, to you know to cover up the fact that they were adopted and that they were born out, out, outside wedlock. When you manage to help somebody, when you find that information, oh, this person, you were in Bespra from the age of two months, or, you know, your mother was there, you were born there in the local hospital, you stayed there, uh, your mother left, and then you were found. When people get this information, does that give them a sense of closure, Patrick, or is there more questions? Because in a lot of cases now, it might be impossible for somebody to find their birth mother or their birth parents, the place that they're from. They can't get that sort of, you know, genetic health information or hereditary health information. So is it, you know, a sense of closure for them or does it in many cases just leave them with more questions about who they are and where they've come from? It's like many things with the mother and baby and county home scheme that people had... Each person had an individual experience in the home. There's common themes that run through everyone's experience, um, but ultimately everyone's experience in that home is different and the reactions are different to it. 
So again, with when we trace people's records, when we can give them them records and we can answer any questions, some people will say that's um, you know that's what exactly what I wanted. Other people will then say, actually, you know, there was you know this seems to be missing, or there's other things that I've you know not as that I've not requested in the past. Now I want to have a look into the educational records, or you know, inf- you know, other in, any other information about the early lives. It also depends on the records that's uh, that comes back. Some records are incredibly thorough and incredibly detailed and go through quite a lot. Other records are very sketchy, and there is some information missing. So, depending on both the individual and what's returned. Uh, some people may wish to carry on looking for records. Other people may say, right, that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I've got this information now. I can sit down. And I know more about myself, you know, because ultimately, you know, I didn't go through a mother and baby home system. It meant that I, you know, I've been able to ask my, uh, my mum and my dad any questions about my life and they've been quite happy to talk about it. But where people have been through the, that system, their information's often just completely closed off to them. Yeah. Um, how is the demand for what you do at the moment, Patrick? Do you find that, you know, now because it's been, you know, we've had this commission and we, you know, there is compensation available mm-hmm. to certain people. Do you find there's a greater interest in getting in touch with you and finding out about people's past who've been through that system? Is it lessening in any way? You know, what's the sort of, how is it trending, as they say, in social media? <laughs> Yeah, we've been we've been very busy in terms of looking for people's records. Um, I mean, the payment the payment scheme isn't open now until twenty twenty four. We're not exactly too sure when twenty twenty four it will become available, and we certainly expect to see um, uh, an upsurge in demand with the payments uh, when the payment system comes online. But certainly, you know, we've been kept busy looking for people's records, um, discussing people's options, uh, and giving people information you know some people will come to us and they will just ask you know what do i need to do what do i need to do in order to get uh, get get these records and we can talk to them and we can inform them about where to go and they will go off themselves and they'll be quite happy to look up look up other people will say well look i don't have the first clue about how to go about doing um about making an application some people might not have any access to the internet um so it makes it quite difficult in order to make applications in in them situations or even find that find that information so we've been we've been kept very busy um where people haven't been able to trace records or it's not been straightforward to trace records of course you know just because we get a no from one organization uh, that they don't have them records that's not the end of it for us we'd we'd then at that stage um you know go back have a look at what some of options are discuss their options and say to them well we can go to this institution we can go to that uh, this this organization that body and they may hold they, they may hold records and that's going to sometimes mean going to three four three four or five bodies in order to get in order to get relevant information um what we want to do is make sure that people feel fully supported in terms of their uh, in terms of their experience of working working alongside us um we want them to understand what the process is 
it's no good me or my colleagues, um, Natalie over in Leeds or uh, Kieran over in Liverpool, just doing things for people because, you know, they have often the reason that they've come to us is they feel that they've been excluded from choices in their own life. So it's not up to us, you know, to exclude them again and just go off and do things. We need to be people who are sitting down and talking and explaining what people's options are and letting them drive the process. Um, it would, of course, be wrong of us to discuss this as if it's only homeless people who went through mother and baby homes. Of course, there are people who've come through it and they've had great success in life and they've had a certain amount of, you know, emotional and domestic stability as well. You know, if you were to sort of... Um, to to divide them up, is there a lot of people who are coming to you solely for the knowledge? Who have no need of the financial compensation whatsoever, you know, because they've done other things in life. But is that ultimately is the is the information more important than the money? Essentially, Patrick, is that sense of knowing who you are and where you came from is that worth more than the money in the end of the day? Again, it comes down to the again it comes down to the individual applicant and what them, and what they you know what they want to do. There is there's a huge emphasis though placed on getting that information, a absolutely huge emphasis on beginning to be able to piece together parts parts of people's lives, um, beginning to be able to have a further self of sense identity. Um, and you're and you're absolutely right. I mean, we see you know many many people who will come to us who have you know worked worked all their lives you know had had careers in nursing and careers in you know you know particularly you know medical and caring um caring jobs who've been able to carry on and live the life that they you know live live a successful life um of course there's re there's some what ifs in that um particularly where people have you know been denied proper access to education when they when they were younger. Um, they kind of think, well, you know, I did this. Maybe what would have happened if I was if I got proper if I got proper education when I was when I was younger? If I wasn't excluded, but that idea of having uh, having that information, having that paperwork to hand, having something that they can look back on, um, it is in, it, it's it, it's proved really really important to, to to people now we've not come across it yet but of course we're aware that having this information may may cause actually you know some emotional problems and we have to be quite quite sensitive to that, that where people get uh information about their early lives it may it may bring up trauma it may bring up you know a lot of memories about what has happened in the past and we have to be quite sensitive to that whenever we're speaking to people so we always you know take the outlook that a as said for the person the person we're speaking to it's a driver of any process that we go through and we also have to sit and be you know quite trauma informed you know ensure that the, the people are quite com comfortable in an environment that they feel able to help uh, sorry, they feel able to talk freely about what their experiences are. And then at the end of it, if they want access to counsel, if they want access to any further support, that we will, as I said, that we'll uh, put them in contact with that and it will support them through that process as well. 
Who supports you through this process, Patrick? Because I can't imagine it's any crack getting up every day and, you know, banging your head off the brick wall of of access requests and of uh, the various systems that are put up uh, when we're dealing with things like this. Who gets you through all this? Um, well, I mean, we've got we've got quite a lot of support around around our work. Um, we so I can speak to speak to my manager. Um, you know, if there's any issues like that, if there's you know anything that we feel particularly traumatic, we found something particularly traumatic. Um, I say I've got recently we've hired two new members of staff because essentially my role is uh, I'm manager of the of the mother and baby home program for the north of england and obviously north england is a vast geographical area so we've got i've got colleague uh, natalie over in leeds who's recently started and kieran kieran over in liverpool has recently started so i've been able to have a chat with them um even if it's not stuff about the you know directly related to uh case but if it's something you find frustrating in terms of being able to um get publicity out get being able to get information out uh that, I say they I say they're very good um to speak to manager bridge um over in Irish community care uh, over in Liverpool she's been a great she's been a great help and uh there's a, another manager over here Patrick at Irish community care in Manchester who's uh, provided you know it's always good you know always freely available to talk to um and it's of course my lovely wife Diane and Celtic the things that would kind of often get me through things. You you could shake your fist and shout at Brendan Rogers and get all your sort of anger out when you go into something <laughs> back. Yeah. Yes, there was no flood that done yet uh, during the first half yesterday as well. So <laughs> that's the thing about football. There's always a new game comes along, you know. Exactly. Um, if somebody in the north of England or if somebody in general is listening to this podcast around the world, Patrick, and they they have been through the mother and baby home systems, is it you know can they contact you? How do they get? How do they make themselves part of this process and find this information that they might feel will fill in some of the gaps about their own history how do they go about finding those things well yeah it's it, it it's really important that people i say that people do look to access this this support where they feel that they that i say that they want to and often what we often what we find is people do just want initial chance and will go away and find that ground information or what they'll do is they will have a chat about their options and then they'll say uh, okay, listen, I know these are my options. I don't want to take them up at the time. So, you know, always come along and have a chat. And people can um, people can phone me if they live in the north of England. Uh, and my number is 
I mean, what we want people to understand is that uh, there is something like 38,000 people who are eligible to apply for support through the Mother and Baby and County Home. Of that, you know, they reckon something like 14,000 alone live in Britain. Um, So it's not just something that has happened in in Ireland and remains in Ireland. What What you find if you look at the history of Mother and Baby Homes is an awful lot of people who go through the system uh, particularly as mothers, you know, as soon as they get old enough, they not just leave the home, but they leave Ireland completely. So they live outside Ireland for a considerable amount of time afterwards, possibly for the rest of their lives. So, you know, if you live outside Ireland and you think that this is just a support scheme for people who are living in Ireland, that's not the case. You know, get in contact with an embassy, get in contact with um, with. Freya in North of England, Coventry Irish Society, of London Irish Centre. You know, all the information that you get is um, is completely confidential, and you're talking to people who have been, you know, trained and you know trained in order to deal with requests. And if you just want to go and look and get information, and then you know you don't follow it up, and then a year or two later you think actually. I want to go back. I want to, you know, I want to go that, get that. I want to carry on with this, with this application. You know, we're always happy to, you know, to pick up, pick that up later on down the line. Or if you never, what I'd also say is, never feel like you're wasting anyone's time. That's what we're here for. And if you get all the information that you require, and you decide at the end of it that you want to, that you don't want to go any further with, the, with, with an application, that's absolutely fine. As long as you have that information, that's that's the most important thing um, that, we, that we find. Do you expect now in 2024 when, you know, we start to talk about payments and people getting compensation for the, for what they went through, do you expect a sort of an upsurge in interest now when people have heard this podcast? So are you going to be busier next year than what you were in 2023, do you think? Yeah, for I mean, what is it? Things like this are really, really important to uh, to us because, you know, while the scheme exists, um, there's no, you know, there's no point in it existing and no one knowing about it. So when we go on podcasts like this or when we run events, um, what it does is it raises publicity, and once it raises publicity, even if you weren't in a home, you know, someone who's in a home. You can you, you can at least pass on that information. So whenever we do, you know, these kind of podcasts, we'll you know we'll see people will get in contact with us and say, um, oh, you know, I heard you on this, or I was at an event that you ran, and I've got some information, and now I want to apply for information with the payment scheme. We'd certainly expect to see um, an increase in demand. Um, not just the fact there's a payment scheme there. Um, but also the big more publicity that comes with it. So that is really um so that is going to prove uh, quite a you know quite a busy time for us in the few, in, in the coming in come 2024 into 2025. Um we expect to be busy and we would hope that people you know do take that opportunity to contact us. You're doing brilliant work, Patrick Rogers, there in Manchester. And no doubt this is a subject that we will return to in the not-too-distant future on the Global Gale podcast. But for now, thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks very much for that. There you go, lads. Isn't he brilliant altogether? I'm amazed, boy. The longer I make these podcasts, like the Global Gale podcast and the Irish and Sweden podcast that also comes on this feed... 
I'm amazed by how much we are capable of doing for each other. And I'm often asked by people in Sweden and by people in different places if this is a peculiarly Irish thing, you know, that we tend to do an awful lot in terms of volunteer work. Look at the GAA, nobody gets paid, well, nobody apart from a few select managers gets paid, you know. All sorts of things tend to crop up in that way. And do you know what? I, I, I always sort of am careful of that thing of Irish exceptionalism because everybody tries to look after their own. But I do think there's something in it. I do think that there's something in the way we're brought up, the way the communities that we live in, the way we try to look after each other, that is different. You know that if you go into an Irish bar in Birmingham or in New York, or you know, if you meet an Irish person there and you're Irish yourself, or if you're of, of Irish heritage, that they will help you, you know, reasonably quickly because of these things that we have in common. And I think of a, a lot of it is down to the fact that we understand that we have this sort of shared trauma, we have this, you know, shared thing that we've all been through. And that, you know, we're in a hurry to help one another then because, you know, that's that's just the way it is. It could have been us, you know, it could have been our relations, it could have been our friends, and maybe it was. And there but for the grace of God and all that kind of thing. So I have to say I'm immensely grateful to everybody who is involved in community organisations around the world. Now, if you keep an eye out on social media, lads, I'm going to be doing five Global Gale Podcast Awards for 2023. And now that it has come out and it's in the... Po- I can't back down, lads, so I have to do it, right? There's going to be Community Organisation of the Year, there's going to be Athlete of the Year, album of the year there's going to be book of the year and then there's going to be person of the year right i have worked together with uh, you know uh, no man is an island no podcast is an island there's a few of us work together on this podcast i get editorial advice and i get marketing advice and and the people who help me out with that are going to be part of the jury if you will for the inaugural global gale awards but uh, if you keep an eye out on at philip o'connor on twitter which is now called x which i refuse to call it but we will be putting it out there in the near future and you will be able to nominate people people and organizations and albums and books and athletes as well you know now you won't have the final say lads because this idea came from the committee right it came from the people behind the podcast but we're certainly going to gather your feedback as to who uh, you who you think should get the awards and people like patrick and organizations like his will definitely be in the running for that so keep an eye out on twitter slash x it's going to be coming up in the next week or so after this podcast comes out if you want to support what i'm doing and support these awards and support the things that we are doing in the communities uh, patreon.com forward slash error man in Stockholm right patreon.com forward slash error man in Stockholm a fiver a month lads if you can do it would be absolutely brilliant and I'll try to invest at least one of those fivers in the euro million so that I never have to ask you for money again but if you can contribute that fiver a month until I win the euro millions or you win the euro millions would well, I'm, I'm easy lads I'm not greedy right but uh, you know if you win the euro millions and you can spot me a few millions so that I can keep doing this until the day that I die that would be equally acceptable to me I'm not gonna lie right so so, um, yes, yeah, certainly, if you could consider doing that and supporting the podcast, if it will always be free, right? People go, oh, you know, you should put it behind a paywall. That's how people will be prepared to pay for it. Yeah, but I've been poor abroad, lads. And I'm not going to exclude anybody from this community on the grounds of money. The weekly podcasts are always going to be free, right? But in order to be able to do that, we have to use what Blind Boy calls the soundness model, right? So you have to go in there and help me out. Throw in a fiver if you can. To a lot of Irish people in, in around the world uh, who are very very happy and doing very well and very 
very successful a fiver is absolutely nothing to others i fully understand it could be the difference between you know getting something to eat or, or somewhere to sleep or maybe having a drink with people which you haven't been able to do for a while because things aren't going well for you but throw in a fiver a month if you can next week as we approach christmas lads i've already done the interview for next week and it is an absolute banger and it is full of energy and it's full of joy and it's full of all the things that make the stories of the irish abroad because remember there's no such thing as an ordinary irish person abroad and the person on next week's podcast is Anya O'Neill and she is by far one of the most extraordinary people that you will ever meet she's a good friend of mine has been for many years and she happened to rock up in Stockholm here she's been living in Los Angeles for a while now she's briefly back in Ireland and she's just a bundle of energy and joy and I just love being around her and I love being with her and her story of going from California to Hollywood I think is what we're going to call that episode that's going to be up on next week's Global Gale podcast so you can start looking forward to that now you can get into patreon.com forward slash arrowman in Stockholm and throw in your fiver and go on to Twitter there or slash x and follow me and get involved in making your suggestions and your recommendations for the global gale awards for 2023 and when we announce the winners coming up to christmas we will let you know and there will be some events lads events if you don't mind look at your man and his podcast notions out of that what is it with the middle-aged fellas and the beards and the podcast notions hey? but you look at we're all about building community and if we can do that in person all the better i shall let you go until next week my friends look after you ourselves look after one another share the podcast if you can and i'll talk to you again very very soon good luck (laughs) 